0: The fact is, the victim population have fairly high expectations.
1: Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All
0: right.
2: Welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts. This episode is supported by justiceinfo.net. I'm Stephanie van den Berg, And I'm Janet Anderson. Today, we have a bit of a patchwork show
0: and we've called in Lorraine smith to help us out. Hi, Lorraine. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Janet. It's good to be back. Um, I know it's almost the end of January, but since I haven't spoken to you as yet, um, I just want to say Happy New Year. Good to be back.
3: Happy New Year to you, too. Nice to have you back. We had Lorraine on before discussing reparations at the International Criminal Court when she was at redress. And we found out that it's a very complex, a bit of a messy system. Um, I think that was a year ago, maybe a couple of years ago. But since then, Lorraine's become an independent operator. She set up Tallawa Talks where she gets the views from affected communities and she amplifies them. In December, we joined her event about the independent experts review of the ICC, where she asked, what does the work of these experts who critique the hell out of this court now actually mean for the victims? They're meant to play a central role in the ICC participants and to get reparations after a conviction. It was a super
2: interesting discussion with some of the people, including from the ICC itself, which we don't hear speaking so candidly quite often. So we wanted to reflect back again on what these amazing experts
3: said and to check with Lorraine on what she now thinks. And we're especially interested in the reparations part because we've just finished up a series of articles, which was about a year in the making on the ICC's Trust Fund for Victims, which you can read on justiceinfo.net.
2: Don't remind me, I don't ever want to see a spreadsheet ever again. But the discussion we had was about more than just reparations. And we also had Paulina Macida, one of the court's legal representatives of victims, talk about how the recent independent expert review confirmed the importance of victims' participation all through the process. So let's listen to her.
4: The experts are saying the impact of involvement of participating victims on the length of trial proceedings and of the work required by the defense was raised. It was submitted that their involvement should be only at the sentencing. And it was also submitted that time, the right to reparation to conviction increased the prospect that lawyers representing victims become a second prosecutor. And here it comes the important part. However, In the absence of concrete examples of these impacts and in the face of anecdotal accounts to the contrary in respect of which there is no basis for suggesting any curb on the right of victims to participate in proceedings before the court. I wanted to read out this because I think this gives a sense of how the victim's participation is perceived externally as important. So, it's perceived externally as important, but we need some more adjustment to render it more effective.
3: So, Lorraine, what about this process of victims' participation as a whole? Um, I had the impression that really it was a bit of an alphabet soup at the I- ICC. There were too many departments, too many places for victims to join in. It was quite difficult for them, and judges kept on coming up with different ways of doing things would you now say that things are much better streamlined than they were?
0: Firstly, I would start where Paulina also started, which is to underscore the fact that um, it has been an evolutionary process at the court. It, you know, we, it, it's really important to start at the, the at the place that victim participation is central to the ICC system and that this is an important um Um, progress or progressive move over the ad hoc tribunals. So I I think that in that sense, it's really important to start there, to acknowledge that. And the Independent Expert Review also did that. Um, And the fact that there are several different sections that have been working on victims' issues, including the Victim Participation and Reparations section, the Victims and Witnesses Unit the public information um, and documentation section, the Office of Public Counsel for Victims, I mean, the list goes on, as well as external legal representatives and the trust fund, obviously, that comes in later in relation to reparations, tells you, I think, about the complexity of um, involving victims in, in, in the process as participants. So I think this was something that was also recognized. It was acknowledged by the by the independent experts. And they did a pretty good job in, in setting out clearly what each arm or each section's role was. And I think once you you see it and there's an understanding of it, it doesn't feel so much like an alphabet soup. It feels like during the evolutionary process, there were overlapping functions that, you know, maybe the VPRS could have been doing some things that the trust fund took onto itself and so on. And I'm hoping that over over time there will be course correction. I think we are now seeing more clearly um, that the VPRS is stepping forward fully in its role as one of the, the chief administrative bodies that engages with victims at the application phase of the proceedings. And we're seeing also the very clear and important role that the legal representatives of victims play in the process. So I don't think you have too many sections. I just think you know, over time, we are seeing more clarity in, in 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 relation to the respective roles. And I think that's going to be important going forward. There needs to be streamlining of the roles, but also increased collaboration. In the
2: online event, you've also invited Philip Ambach, who is the chief of the Victims' Participation and Reparations Unit, that VPRS that we were talking about. He also talked about the expert report and that he was kind of pleased that the experts put victims and the importance of their participation front and center?
5: I wouldn't have expected the expert report to be so um, yeah, uh, um, frank and clear and, uh, and, and victim-oriented um, as it actually is. So in, in many different parts of the report, you will find uh, portions that deal with victim participation, be that uh, the database end, be that the end of the application process, be that the end of what Paulina just made reference to, uh, the content of, of, of uh, the participatory rights. So I think that um, uh, overall the um, report does give um, a proper weight to victim participation as it is at the ICC. And I think this is simply an effect of the fact that it has dawned on all of us that whilst the UN tribunals uh, considered this still to be sort of a nice to have feature It has become one of the key tenets of the whole system as such. So our international criminal justice um, system has sort of taken on this function and and, uh, therefore the uh, report rightfully puts um, a proper limelight on things. And as I said, I by and large think that what they say is quite sensible. And even where we may disagree, be that internally or externally, they they put the finger in the wounds they put they put actually the the markers to where really we really do have problems
3: now one of those problems says victims lawyer joseph Akwenyumanoba, who represents people in the case of former child soldier turned lra commander dominic ongwen is that those who work at the court don't actually always get what the victim's role is and why it's so important uh,
1: i'll i'll tell you like uh, last year I believe for the other year when we had um, the judges visit uh, the crime scenes Uh, there are people on on the mission that really specifically in the media team of the court that didn't know what victim participation is and you see it tells you much if you have part of of the court that really doesn't understand what victim participation uh, and we're talking about the media section of the court so for me, it is important that um, you know, it's not just the independent experts, but crucially, people within the ICC that need to fully appreciate victim participation. Now, uh, in terms of the, the victims themselves, at, at their level, participation is very, has been very helpful, at least in my experience. What we have seen is that um, in, in those discussions that we have held, Individually, with particular uh, groups of victims, Uh, we have had the opportunity for victims to kind of tell their story, which many, many victims would not have to, to, to do at the court. But in that process, of of having um, that status of victim participation, they have been able to uh, share their stories and we have seen people break down emotionally. But in the course of that discussion, we have seen that uh, there there is healing that these these, uh, victims register uh, at the individual level. So I think victim participation is uh, very important, except that uh, the independent experts perhaps uh, were reluctant to delve into it because of the fears that they had of the things that they might bring out or receive, which they would not be in a position to, to deal with, with, given the short time that they had.
2: So, Lorraine Joseph here is talking about the situation in Uganda. You've been to Uganda on the ground and you've seen the victims. Um, what did you get? Is there a sense of, is there feeling about the court and they, the way they can participate beyond just possibly getting reparations?
0: The Uganda situation is, is as interesting as it is complex. I mean, I didn't work specifically with um, victims who are um, admitted to participate in the Ongwen case. But I think it's important to understand contextually how the case before the ICC impacts local processes. So, for example, you have another former LRA commander, Thomas Coelho, who is before the um, the International Crimes Division of the Uganda High Court. His case has been pending for over 10 years. Both cases are are operating in a context where Uganda is also in a process of, um, you know, setting up a transitional justice framework, and they put together a transitional justice policy, which was only passed in 2019 by the Ugandan cabinet, and they're still waiting to implement the transitional justice bill. So you have an ICC case, which represents the hope of a large part of the Ugandan population, the victim population, for justice and accountability, which has been delayed for several years, after the the conflict in Northern Uganda. And you have another set that's connected that are still waiting for justice at the national level. And you have a trust fund for victims that has been operating in its assistance mandate in that context, only in relation to the the, the persons that are relevant to the ICC situation. Not so much Because they haven't started implementing reparations as yet, because we have to await um, the outcome of the verdict in the Ongwen case. But when you understand sort of the contextual framework, you also understand Joseph's frustration to a large extent. The fact is, as he says, um, the victim population have fairly high expectations. And I think this is something that Luke Muffet during the event also talked about. You know, how do we manage expectations versus what is realistically possible in terms of victim participation and also reparations?
3: The other thing that strikes me from what you're saying now, Lorraine, is this understanding that we have to have of the bigger national context in each case where. Different governments can have other policies going on. There can be different levels of accountability. There can be different policies towards reparations, and um, I think we'll come onto that later when we talk about the Almadi case, where there's, you know, the Malian government has its own policy on reparations. Then you've got the the ICC's one, and so on. So it's it's a really complex environment that any of these interventions are taking place in. Exactly, and this is this is, I
0: think it was partially recognized by the independent expert review because they did talk about the fact that the complexity of, um, of, of you know, the, the kind of situations that the ICC deals with also impacts on how the court approaches, um, you know, the participation, and I think also by extension, reparations And this is one of the things that we've seen that I think has contributed to some of the inexorable delays in the initial start to just understanding how exactly does victim participation work? How do we engage with local populations, for example, in Afghanistan, in in Palestine? I think one of the most interesting questions that came during the discussion was from someone from Sudan, from Darfur. you are saying, look, You know, we have been, our case has been, our situation has been before the ICC for many years. But we still, we don't know anything. Al-Bashir was a fugitive for so many years. All of these others who were wanted were fugitives. We don't know anything about victim participation. How will you ensure that we are also engaged in this process?
2: One of the things that came out as well in the discussion is that Philip Ambach was asked outright whether the court uses victims to boost its legitimacy. And uh, let's listen to what he said.
5: Yes, of course. Uh, Of course, we use the victim uh, angle in order to legitimize the the, the ICC. But so does every single um, uh, um, hybrid court that has come to existence since. Have you checked the statutes of these courts? They all have victim participation. Now, some of them even copying and pasting provisions from the ICC. So are they all just doing this for the looks? No, of course not. None of us is doing it for for the looks. We think that it has to be there and we're trying to give it life. But you also have to make a judgment call. If you have a finite budget, you have to give life to everything that's in there. And that is also the criminal proceedings. And obviously, I don't want to dwell too long on this, but we need to keep in focus that Our capacity will always be limited and there's always going to be someone pointing at whichever quarter it is and say, hey, you guys are not doing enough there, so you might apparently not be taking it seriously enough. These people, I would then refer to Joseph and Paulina and have a talk of how good Joseph and Paulina are actually talking to their clients in person in the field.
3: So in the field, victims' participation uh, in court cases, we can see it's complicated, but we can agree that the court is definitely making a good effort. There's this other specific aspect, though, of the Rome Statute that we've already started to, to touch on, and it's part of how the ICC was set up, and it's the issue of reparations for those who've been injured or affected by these atrocity crimes. And in doing our
2: series of stories on the Trust Fund for Victims, um, which is the fund that administers reparations, I was actually quite shocked that up to last year, uh, they had only been working in Uganda and the Democratic Republic of Congo via their assistance mandate, and they had managed to deliver only direct reparations in in the Katanga case, even though there are other cases like Lubanga and Almadi, which are also at at the reparation stage.
3: But when we spoke to the TFV and we did some direct interviews with the heads of the different parts of it, they acknowledged that they've had these earlier delays, they'd had these big issues, but they insisted that things are now speeded up and they're really working well. And as part of Lorraine's discussion, we also heard from Francesca Eckelmans, the legal advisor and the deputy to the executive director of the Trust Fund for Victims.
6: We are at the moment, yeah, implementing uh, three reparation awards and three proceedings, many more reparation awards in Lubanga, in Katanga and in Almadi. And I think it's a very gratifying experience for um, everyone who is working in the trust fund uh, to work together with the legal representatives, to work together uh, with VPRS, with the court in actually being in contact with the victims. Today, my colleague uh, who actually was able to go on mission to Bamako, describing the situation in the field there where um, the members of the family of the descendants of the saints can apply directly for reparations, for individual reparations. And so she's sitting there with the uh, legal representative On a daily basis at the moment, receiving victims, talking to them, getting their application forms, seeing is that the right identity, uh, getting the attestations that they are descendants, and being able to bring that uh, through the VPIS system, basically in the end, to the board of directors for a decision on eligibility that will lead to a reparation um, award for each of them who are found to be a descendant. And the trust fund has now uh, basically contracted or is in the process of finalizing the contract with the organization that will give the money. So we expect that this money will go directly to these victims. Our legal um, uh, staff is at the moment talking to in the next few months. And what is happening is what I think Philip just described, reaching out to the victims. So we are at a very late stage. Huh? We are, the reparation order is uh, already uh, there. An implementation plan is there. Last week, our people on the ground together with Mama Koite, the chair of the board of directors, made a press statement explaining once more about the reparation program, explaining that there will be an assistance program, as also asked for by the judges. And at once, the people are there and they understand that they have to come forward now if they want to receive the reparations. And that's amazing, basically. And she's just reaping the fruits of that. Um, And we have a similar experience in Lubanga, where now we are so far that as well, the collective reparation program will start to run, that there are still so many uh, victims that will come forward Uh, through the legal representatives to the trust fund to be found eligible uh, as child soldiers or as family members of child soldiers to receive reparations, not individually, but as a collectivity, but depending on their individual harm, physical, psychological, uh, or socio-economic. And that will be addressed in a five-year program uh, of Uh, that organization selected as an implementing partner by the Trust Fund. So again, uh, we have uh, this direct contact. We are now even in COVID times, I think yesterday uh, it's starting that we are again having interviews and we try to do that now also remotely assess how that works because we have to move forward. We cannot uh, wait till we can again just be in Bunia at the moment that's difficult because of COVID. So there is a lot uh, uh, in that sense, uh, I think, happening in the trust fund that uh, is a direct contact uh, with victims in the field, let alone in Katanga, where actually the trust fund is directly implementing reparations for 297 victims in very close cooperation with the legal representatives.
2: Lorraine, when you hear that, Francisca's being really upbeat, they're doing all these things, they're really making up for all the delays, kind of. But, uh, you know, to the TVF is really saying, give us a chance. Uh, we can fix this, but do, can they really? Is it? Is it?
0: Is there still time? Because they've
2: taken so long in some of these cases.
0: Well, I think my 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 response would be probably the same thing I said during the event, and that was: is this a, a question of too little, too late? Um, I do feel like the trust fund is trying to make some effort now to get its act together, but I do. Think that the IER um, findings and their recommendations for the trust fund should be looked at and taken very, very seriously. The reality is that I think all of us feel like the investment in the trust fund should not go to waste because so much depends on it. There is no other independent administrative body that the court has at its disposal right now that can implement reparations on behalf of the victims, unless it looks at, you know, an external um, organization, um, you know, like the IOM, not the internal IOM, the external IOM, Um, but the trust fund. So people want, there's there's a lot of goodwill towards the trust fund we all want the trust fund to work mainly because it is set up exclusively to deliver reparations and assistance for victims so i am really very i I was hopeful i'm very willing and very open to remain hopeful that what francesca says is in fact so that in fact they are moving ahead and it is true they have put in place a number of management um measures to help to move things along so and that includes having their fundraising person in place after many years of waiting for a fundraising strategy something that the IER also picked up on so i do think that efforts have been made but it has been it has been too slow i think that the the capacity deficit is something that was known and so it didn't need the IER report to say that you know we issued a report a redress years before that, that it was also picked up i'm sure we haven't seen publicly the iom report but the iom also i'm sure pointed to certain gaps so i don't think any of that was new so to only have that put in place in 2020 i think is was was quite late but i'm willing to give the trust fund the benefit of the doubt and say As long as now things can move ahead, if that works and that, you know, does what it's supposed to do for the victims, then I'm really happy to see that.
2: And when Lorraine um, references the IOM, that's the independent oversight mechanism of the court that looked at the trust fund in depth, which is a report that is secret that we haven't seen, um, but we have heard people quote from it and, and refer to it. And it seems to be largely a lot of the the kind of pain points that the independent expert report pointed out this report has also pointed out before now you talked about um how long it takes when paulina uh, spoke in the online event she also stressed that whatever the trust fund for victims does now they need to be faster and uh, she kind of echoed the independent expert report which basically said that victims sometimes wait a lifetime
4: we have been waiting for ages before the Lubanga reparation is on the right track now, but we have been waiting ages and it cannot be continued that way. I really think that the trust fund will need to find a way of reorganize itself internally to be more responsive to the needs of victims at the very beginning. I would love to see system programs run since the very early stage when the situation is open before the court, because this could already alleviate a lot of needs of victims in the field and could be an example for possible reparations programs in the future.
3: One of the things that you, you can note there from what Paulina has to say, And what we found out when we were doing our work is that actually within the court itself, there's been a lot of backwards and forwards about how to make the trust fund work. Um, There's even this kind of suggestion that maybe they should change massively within the court who takes responsibility for individual bits and pieces. Is the trust fund really taken seriously and centrally in the court? Do, is it now seen as the, one of the organs that has to work properly? Um, I think from, you know,
0: I think just from some bilateral discussions I've had, I feel that there is, there has been from, from some quarters A level of frustration that the trust fund has not been functioning the way that it should and i don't think that is even just um, private discussions we've seen in decisions of the chambers there has been impasse between the chambers in the lubanga case and the trust fund um the al judges at one stage were really upset at what they found was a, a very poorly drafted implementation plan Um, for reparations, you know, they did come back admittedly after the trust fund made the necessary adjustments and they complimented them for moving ahead in the way that they should. But I I feel like um, there is going to be an urgency to the trust fund working collaboratively in order to maintain its own sense of that it's fit for purpose let me put that put it that way it's going to have to work collaboratively and it's also going to have to demonstrate within a very short time that it is serious about the changes it says that it has made to function efficiently because i feel like persons are not as willing both within the court and outside to give that long rope that it had initially or, um, you know, to give
3: all of that opportunity to find itself and so on. One of the people you included in your discussion was uh, Dr. Luke Moffat from Queen's University, Belfast, a well-known reparations expert. And you really had the sense from him that, yeah, it's come to the end of his rope with how the trust fund is operating. He was quite exasperated about what the fund was doing and his fundamental view was, is it being effective in its assistance mandate? No, he doesn't think so. And Is it really just spending more money on staff costs than actually delivering services?
7: I know Francesca's saying, you know, it's all great. You know, it's really gratifying speaking to victims. But when the trust fund hasn't got a proper strategy to actually give stuff to victims, it is actually getting more money for its own staff to carry out. It's like, what, 3.2 million euros this year, but in the last year it only got two point six million euros in donations. So I think, like, who's the Trust Fund serving? Is it serving just to pay the staff wages? You know, you know it's created this assistance program, which wasn't envisioned um, in the Rome Statute or by the drafters. It's something that the Trust Fund created. And they could say, we helped all these victims. We've helped hundreds of thousands of victims But it hasn't been the case. There's been a few thousand victims that have directly benefited from very tiny things that they needed, such as like prosthetics and plastic surgery. And there's some great people on the ground doing that sort of work. But that stuff should have been more focused at the ICC in terms of doing interim relief for victims who are before the court, rather than doing this assistance programme, which is tacked on, and it's, it's self-gratifying. It doesn't benefit victims, so it doesn't, because the money being spent is on staff wages and not actually helping victims on the ground. So if we're being serious about doing more for victims, the money speaks, follow the money, and we need more transparency of where this is being spent, because really, you know, it's all good. nice saying, you know, we want to do more for victims. Well, let's do it. Let's think about developing stuff locally, like we funded locally and um, and seeing how states and also other international organizations can help deliver that. The Taganda case is a good one. There's going to be big, complex cases come down the road with um, Al-Hassan and Ogwin if they are con- convicted. And even the IRE report says, you know, You've got Myanmar, you've got Afghanistan situations. These aren't just, you know, a few thousand victims. These are hundreds of thousands of victims. How are we going to fund this? And I I think, you know, we need to be, um, again, being modest, but also we need to push the boundaries. We need to get people who can pay to pay, you know, like... States play a big part in this. You know, a lot of violence doesn't happen without states in some way or another. And so if we're serious about it, we need to think about um, focusing money and whether it's creating a dedicated budget line within the ICC budget for reparations, because the trust fund strategy isn't working. It hasn't worked for years. I know they say they do the assistance mandate to help fund reparations. That hasn't worked. Because if you're looking to get 40 million to cover the three cases already at the court, It hasn't manifested so far. So we need a complete shift in culture and focus.
2: After this uh, long answer, we can't really play that clip without giving you a bit of Francesca's reply. So here is what she had to say to some of
6: his comments. Very interesting to me that, especially in the case of Uganda, where the trust fund has, I think, reached out to about 50,000 victims directly to help them get operations. It's not a small thing. Uh, It's basically to help them uh, in, in many, many, in many different ways. It's in our reports over the years that this is the point of criticism, basically. That is interesting to me because we are that was one of the few countries where we were in at a very early stage, we do that now in Georgia, we are also there in Mali now with new assistance programs and we are thinking about how to make that better it's out there in the world. How we address these situations is through more flexibility in getting partners and getting implementing partners and we have addressed that together with the registry and we know that we need improved better strategies with the help of the. Of the registry, of other parts of the um, out and of our funding partners to move forward quicker. But we are, I think, there. And I think I explained where we are at the moment and what we have turned around in the last year. And uh, I'm very confident that uh, the Trust Fund is able to move forward uh, with these projects and to help victims um, and address the harm that they suffered.
2: So that's Francesca on the on the specific case of needing to start early in talks with Francesca and other people from the Trust Fund for Victims for our article about the money aspects that Luke brought up. Uh, This fund also stressed that the budget they get from the court is not only used to pay wages of people involved in the reparations and the assistance program, but also very much people who need to be involved in the court cases and the legal kind of administration things they have to do. So they felt that comparing staff wages to what was being spent on the assistance mandate was unfair. On the other hand, the fact remains that the Trust Fund for Victims has gotten over 56 million euros to do what it does, and it has spent 17.5 million on assistance and reparations and 21.5 on staff and admin costs. So there is potentially an imbalance in that if you want to look at it very generally.
3: Now, Lorraine, you've read the IER report. I mean, that's what your discussion was based on. We've read it. They basically say that. Trust fund should stop doing some of the things it's doing. There should just be more fundraising, which we've already touched upon. And Luke would suggest that they shouldn't even be doing assistance uh, in the way that they, they are, that the registry should take over. We put that to the trust fund for victims and they've strongly resisted it. What do you think would be the best structure going forward? If if we gave you a free hand, here's your wand. You can you can organize it as you want. What's your best structure, Lorraine? I think
0: that um, I'm not sure. I agree with the IER that the trust fund should be a purely um, independent, a purely fundraising body. <laughs> not sure whether that's their strength, since you know their fundraising person has literally just been brought on board. And with 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 fundraising, what we've seen when you're trying to apply for funds is that people want to see that you are also you also know how to administer those funds and you will use it in a particular way. But I do think there is um, space for the trust fund to outsource. um, And I don't mean with just its local partners, but there is I think need, more thought needs to be put to how they can collaborate with existing um, bodies. For example, and I mentioned them before, the other IOM, the International Organization for Migration, they have a fairly well-established um, reparations program for and, uh, to deliver reparations in some of these countries that are also ICC situation countries. And I do know that the the trust fund has explored greater levels of collaboration with them. My ideal sort of trust fund would be the Interganda approach, where the VPRS continues what it has been doing, which is identifying victims, potentially eligible victims for operations, registering them in the database. The trust fund shouldn't do that. The trust fund has taken a long time to do it. I agree with the Ntaganda approach. Let the VPRS do it. They have the system. They have the capacity to do it. I think um, I agree with the, the idea that the trust fund should do more with fundraising, but I don't think they should become exclusively a fundraising body. In relation to whether they should not do any kind of assistance, The jury is out for me because i feel like unless they decide to do some kind of what we call interim reparations which is how luke muffet puts it which is to do something for the the victims in the meantime pending the final reparations decision if we don't have the the assistance mandate it's it's left wide open so i feel like there should be that but i think the trust fund needs to put its energy and its emphasis on implementing reparations and not as much on the assistance and some of the other things that it's currently doing now. So it's a difficult question because we don't have much to go off of in terms of what they really have been doing well so we can then say "Uh, you should focus here and do this a little bit better. It's tough. Well this is
2: obviously going to be a question that we're going to mill for the coming years and with new cases and the Ongwen case coming up with possibly if he's found guilty over 4,000 victims that are already participating that's going to be another big reparations question. So I'm sure I think Lorraine you should just be our like standard guest coming once a year to tell us
3: how reparations are going. <laughs> oh- Thanks so much for that uh, summary of where we are at the moment with reparations. And yes, I agree with the idea of this standing invite to Lorraine to tell us about reparations because it's so important. But um, I bet you there's something that we've missed and that we didn't uh, manage to ask you about. What should we have asked you about?
0: I think there is another aspect to this that I want to stress because it might come across as if we're just only bashing the trust fund. And we're not. I think I don't, use my time to have these discussions if I don't strongly believe in something. and I do believe that there is scope for improvement, and I'm willing to give a chance to the trust fund. But I also think there it's important to acknowledge some of what the IER spoke about in relation to the judges, because um, they highlighted the fact that you had inconsistent judicial decisions and what appeared to be some confusion at the early stages, but that but that progressively, this is in relation to victim participation, that progressively you saw some more clarity in the jurisprudence. But it, what that told me is that a lot of this, in terms of how the participation and reparations um, functions at the ICC also rests in the hands of the judges. So, for example, the judges in in the Intaganda case has really taken the reins in terms of saying, yes, I've heard what you've said, I've heard the objections of all the parties about whether reparations should begin before the appeal process is completed. But we're gonna go ahead because we think it's more efficient this way. And these kinds of judicial decisions that are firm, that hold the party, that has everybody being accountable that says, the VPRS is to do this or the trust fund, I think in the long term will help. Judges play an important role by managing both the participation process and in their oversight responsibility for the trust fund in ensuring that, you know, we don't languish for five, 10 years before we actually see reparations delivery. So, I think that's another important takeaway from the IER report as well, that certainly observers like myself will continue to follow.
2: So, that was our first kind of asymmetrical haircuts question that we ask every guest. What did we miss? Our next, we changed up a little from the last time you were on. So, now uh, our question is in the spirit of embracing mistakes Is there any kind of mistake in your career or thing that you thought at first and was proven
0: wrong and had to adjust your views on? Oh, Lord. Oh, definitely. I think which one should I choose? It has nothing to do with international law. But let me let me give you an example. When I was a prosecutor in Jamaica, I was assigned to the money laundering unit. And it it seemed really interesting at the time. But over time, I really realized that it was just not my thing. I mean, it's I mean, it's ironic because that very "Quote unquote mistake" because they moved me to a, a victims unit, and here I am following victims' issues. But that thing actually has come back because now I am an advocate as well for very strong asset forfeiture <laughs> proceedings, so that victims are able to access reparations because of you know assets seized. So. It was a mistake that worked out pretty well. And this is why
3: I say to the trust fund, you can always course correct. And our final question, uh, is there anything that you've been watching during lockdown, listening to, anything that you've got on your bedside table that you've been reading that you'd like to share with the listeners?
0: I'm going to do a, a, a promotion. It sounds really funny, but you're absolutely right. The lockdown has helped us to read um, books that have been on your table forever and you never get to read. And one of them that I've been reading is com- was compiled by Impact. It's a book about the survivors from um, Rwanda, and it's called And I Live On. You cannot read all in one go. It does take a moment. I've been reading a couple of these survivor stories so that I, you know, I really take the time to not look at the survivors in a Sort of theoretical purely legal way but you hear them and it's not an easy read during lockdown but it also gives me an amazing level of hope because i think yeah if they survived what they went through with the genocide then i think i can get through covid 19 and homeschooling so i'm not gonna complain so it's
3: it's helped <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a great choice. Thank you. Um, I remember when they launched it and uh, it's uh, it it's full of great, difficult stories. So thank you very much. Thank you for uh, making time for us again out of your incredibly busy homeschooling and everything else, like earning some money schedule that you've got, Lorraine. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. It was lovely to see you both.
2: Thank you again. And uh, next year, same time, same place for uh, an update on reparations, I think. Okay.
3: Take care.
2: Asymmetrical Haircuts is presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode has obviously been recorded at home, but we'd still like to give a shout out to our regular host, Humanity Hub, and we hope to return there soon. Music was by audionautics.com. We're available on all major podcast apps. Give us a rating and spread the word.